Did you know podcasts reach millions of people every month? Podcast advertising is a great way to reach new customers. In fact, you'll be speaking directly to them. Visit audiometric.io now to find out more. Okay, partners, it's MassCast time. We gotta stop Venom. And the only way you can stop Venom is by listening to this interview with my friend, Doug Stone. He was Matt Tracker. He was me. Oh, he was a lot of us. When one opens a puzzle, and within the puzzle finds a mystery, you will find a clue that will lead you to listening to Mask Cast and my friend, Duck Stone. Mask was a, a very important to us. It was a career launcher. It was thrilling to be on network TV. It was bigger than anything I'd ever done. So yeah, I absolutely, uh, I watched them, I taped them, and uh, yeah, we, oh, we loved it. Hondo McLean says, listen to my buddy Doug. I'll come over there and thump you one. Mask cast. Select the mask agents best suited for this mission. Jason G, DJ, movie writer, 80s guru, vehicle code name, Frontier. Wyatt B, sound engineer, movie writer, airman, vehicle code name, Dakota. Why don't they invite Nash Corey to be on Mass Cast? No, they don't want me. They just want the good guys. Well, I don't care. That's fine. I'm happy right here in my cave, hiding out from Mask. Welcome, faithful listeners and fellow Mask enthusiasts, to Mass Cast 38. We are taking a quick break from our normal cartoon episode reviews to welcome a very special guest to tonight's show. But before we get into that, allow us to introduce ourselves. My name is Jason, and as always, I'm joined by my longtime friend and MassCast co-host, Wyatt. How are you, sir? Great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm actually pretty stoked about uh, this this interview, this special show we have lined up for our listeners. I think we are both reeling from this awesome opportunity we had for this episode. Oh, yeah. We've had some great guests on the show over the past couple of years, including Bill Ferries of MattTracker.com, uh, graphic designer and mask fanatic Paul Pamphalone, Eric from BoulderHill.net. But tonight we are thrilled to debut our interview with our first mask voice actor. We actually got Doug Stone come on board for uh, an episode. Now, if you are an official agent of Mask, which is basically just signing up for our monthly email transmission, you already knew about our interview tonight and also had the opportunity to send in a question for Doug, which several people took advantage of. So we cordially invite everybody to go to agentsofmask.com. You click the Join tab on the left side of the page and just sign up with your email for inside information each month about our site and of course MassCast. So please do that. Um, just a brief backstory about inviting Doug onto the show. Um, I heard him give an interview for another podcast across the pond called Nerdversity 
I was really excited to hear Doug was still receptive to all the fans after all these years have passed and decided to send him a message about appearing on our show. And once he agreed, I sent a text to Wyatt, and we both, I think, had the same reaction. We were very excited and immediately started formulating our own question list. That's exactly it. And uh, I actually got the news at work, uh, which we talked quite a bit, uh, I think, almost up until about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, typically. Uh, <laughs> yes. Whether it's uh, ideas about masks or other entities. But uh, anyway, I was really excited and I remember that I was actually during a lull, which was rare lately, and I'm just going, okay, wh- what question do I want to ask Doug? I mean, really, uh, uh, okay, calm down, get the zen going. Okay, now let's focus. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, we were both kind of like kids in candy stores, but at the same time, um, I, you know, transitioning to this uh, agents of mask and kind of thinking about the community, I also had the mind of a fan, I guess, so I was I, I didn't want to keep this opportunity to ourselves and right. had the idea to, you know, give our dedicated followers a chance to ask a question. So it was great to be able to somewhat share this time with the fans literally around the world as you'll hear when you hear the interview. But uh well, Venom they ran some interference during the interview <laughs> as yeah. Doug was recovering from a cold and Wyatt had some internet trouble at the beginning but thankfully he was able to rejoin soon after we started uh, but we are really excited for this episode as you can probably tell with the the sound bites in the intro and such so Wyatt are you uh you ready to give the listeners what they came for yes and I'm very eager to say it this time let's start the mascot Welcome, MassCast listeners, to a very special episode. Um, this is Jason, and usually joining me is Wyatt. We are having some connection issues at the moment, but uh, we didn't want to uh, waste any more of our guests' time today. We are pleased to have on the line a very special guest from the Mask animated series. Actually, if my count is correct, there's actually eight guests on the line <laughs> with us Um This veteran voice actor credits include American animated shows and movies, Japanese anime, several video games, and hundreds of other voice credits not listed on Wikipedia or IMDb. Please welcome Doug Stone. Doug, how are you? I'm pretty good. I I suspect Wyatt has been victimized by Mayhem, who (laughs) totally against this interview. He's not included, so uh, I I hope he's going to be all right, uh, Wyatt. Yeah. We're going to have to assemble the team here and... Go after Wyatt. Yeah, rest. We are, we are very grateful for you uh, taking the time to answer a few of our questions and also some of our listener questions that were sent in. I guess um, if we want to start from the beginning, we can. Um, you were born in uh, Canada, correct? That's correct, yes, Toronto, Canada. And how did you end up doing uh, voice work in the States? Uh, Sort of a circuitous route. Everybody's got their particular story. In Canada, I was doing very little voice work. At that time, there wasn't much of it. It did supplement my income slightly by doing some commercials here and there. But generally, I was a stage actor uh, doing a lot of comedy, primarily making my living doing improvisational comedy and sketches and some on-camera work where I tended to play the heavy. Uh, When I'm on, the camera sort of finds its own way of discovering what it wants you to be. And although I was humorous on stage, on camera, I looked more like a sort of angry Al Pacino type 
So, uh, <laughs> I was doing an independent film up there, and the cinematographer, who was rather more accomplished than all of us, took me aside and said, you know, you're a very good actor. I said, thank you. He said, who's your agent? I didn't have a great agent at the time. He said, look, I'm going to recommend you to this particular agency. I think you should be with them uh, and get access to better work. They were kind enough to sign me. And then coincidentally, about three months later, a French-American-Canadian uh, conglomerate came together to do a series called Mask. Only two or three agencies in Canada, in Toronto and in Canada, were allowed to audition for it. And the agency I had just signed for was one of them. Uh, I auditioned for it. They cast me as Matt. The originally, I think I was three characters, Matt, Hondo, and perhaps Bruce, I think, were the first three that I started with. And we auditioned, oh gosh, about four times uh, in different studios for the L.A. producers before they said, okay, you've got it, and come down to L.A., we're going to record you. And uh, subsequently nice. Nice. Uh, became, as you say, I think something like eight characters uh, eventually. Uh-huh. And that sort of changed the career from the focus being uh, on on-camera and stage work. I still did some stage work down here and a tiny bit of on-camera in L.A., but the voice work was what really opened up for me. I did the series here. The producer and the studio owners were kind enough to say to me, you know, you're good enough to work in L.A., which I didn't really, never expected to have happen. And with their encouragement, I, I pursued it down here and have been fortunate enough for the past 30 years to to actually make a living at it uh, as an actor, director, casting, some production, etc., etc. Well, that's great. So you really didn't have any... I guess formal training as a as a voice actor is that how much of a transition was it from stage to voice? Well, I didn't have a lot of training, but I, I did have some fortunate thing in my background. And then my dad was a, a very highly well-known radio announcer in uh, Toronto. And uh, uh, I had an interest in acting from childhood. So I was doing radio drama uh, as a kid. Uh, so I had some microphone experience even as a toddler. Uh, doing these radio dramas, and then had been doing amateur theater uh, as as a teenager and then into my adulthood. It is definitely a transition, but the transition from, I'd say, stage acting to microphone acting is easier than it is from film acting to microphone acting, in that a stage actor must project and use his voice uh, in much stronger terms than an on-camera actor does. An on-camera actor can go his whole life just being an actor who whispers his lines, who tries to get the emotions through just by underplaying them. But a stage actor's got to hit the back of the, the stage. He's got to be able to project that voice out there and change it around. And, and I was a character actor on stage. So the transition in, in the acting formula wasn't that different. It was learning microphone techniques that I had to master more. But the, 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 the change from theatrical to on camera or rather microphone acting wasn't that drastic. Uh, I, at least I didn't find it to be so. Interesting. Yeah, I always wondered kind of how you know the recording sessions went back then because I I figured you would be all in the same room and could yeah. kind of feed off of each other yeah. as you're doing the voice you know lines. That unfortunately is not the usual way that most things are recorded, but in original animation work like Mask. Generally, the entire cast is assembled. And because uh, they all, uh, Sharon and Brendan in particular, had an enormous amount of theatrical experience. They had a, a very strong theater background. So we were all very much used to that kind of work where you're working ensemble and you're playing off each other. 
So I think that was a big help for us because it really was the biggest thing any of us had done to that point as far as um, uh, microphone work goes. I can't vouch for what the other guys did uh, prior to Mask, but I know it was the biggest thing for all of us. And definitely we would uh, fed off each other. Yeah. Well, I, there's got to be some times where, you know, you went from uh, Matt to Hondo in the yeah. script and maybe back to Matt. How how do you switch from character to character like that? I mean, is there is there kind of a – you have to kind of take a pause in between and, and kind of put it back together in, in post? Or do you – are you able to make that transition almost – without that break in between. Well, the transition, the pride comes in not making them stop and not having the pride comes. in if you can record an entire session with as few times that they have to stop in the booth for a flood line or anything, that's where the pride comes from. So no, I would, I would transition from character to character with just a beat or two pause. Uh, so even if three of them were talking to each other, what you do is take your beat. And a lot of it comes out of body stance. Um, and it, it is where some of the theatrical training does come in handy and where some of the uh, guidance we got from our directors came in handy. Uh, Hondo McLean, Dusty Hayes and, and Bruce Sato and Hondo McLean all stand very differently. Uh, with Hondo, I'm, I'm pushing my chest forward. He had the deepest voice to open the, the cage of my chest as broadly as possible, to use my diaphragm as much as possible to bring that voice up. I can't do it. With, I, I'm laboring with a sore throat and cold right now, but to bring that voice up out of the diaphragm, Dusty's nasal, he's all placed up in there. So with Dusty, <laughs> I'm bent forward and I'm punching my fist forward as I'm talking because I'm full of energy. Bruce Otto, I keep as still as possible. I would not move my body. I would barely move my face, to be honest with you, Jason. With, um, with uh, Matt, I almost took a stance as if I was in a, a martial artist, almost a karate stance, if you will, where he was feet firmly apart, body straight, looking straight ahead. And that's how he delivered his lines, looking straight ahead, forthright, ready to go, ready for action at any moment. So everybody had a different body stance, which changes how the air passes through your, the throat and your chest. It changes the sound of the instrument as much as does vocal placement. So you, as many things as you can change, it, it helps you as an actor to find that different attitude, you've got to adopt a new attitude with a new voice because the lines, you don't want anybody to know that the uh, the same actor is delivering the same lines, of course, if, if you can keep them from knowing that until they read the credits. So as much as you can do, Dusty might tear through a line without any pauses whatsoever because he's anxious to get to, to wherever he's going. Whereas Bruce, Bruce is going to savor the few words he must say because they are rife with meaning. So everybody's got their tood as well as their body stance. And, and of course, the lines, if they're well written, uh, are written for that particular character, which makes it all the easier for the actor to, to find the life force of the character. That's great. That just totally makes sense when you're thinking about, even in the animation, when you see how they stand or, you know, converse back and forth to each other, that you would do that in the studio as well. Absolutely. Your arms are moving. All I was once doing a... The late Tony Pope, bless his heart, he was goofy for many years. He played goofy. We used to say his biography was, uh, I was goofy in Hollywood. Uh, I used to be goofy. But we were once doing a session for, for Cam Clark was directing. The guy from uh, Cam was in uh, Ninja Turtles. And he was directing uh -huh. the session I was in. And I couldn't get this line to work. It just wouldn't. It was simply me handing something to someone. 
and it, it wasn't masked, and, and the line wouldn't work, and they were conferring, and I was nervous. What am I doing wrong? And Tony leaned over and said, hand it to him, physically hand it to him. I said, I'm ready to try again. And as I did the line, I handed the scroll, the invisible scroll, to the person as I delivered the line, and they went, ah, oh, that got it. I said, thank you, Tony. And it reminds me, of course, you've got to physicalize what you're doing. Uh, when you do fight sequences, I've done a lot of games and a lot of action features. Uh, I used to dub Jackie Chan features. My own company did that. You have to physicalize it. We'd come out of those sessions exhausted because it's like doing uh, as if you were in a martial arts class. When you're doing fight sequences or action sequences, you've got to physicalize it to get your body engaged, to get your voice engaged, to make it sound realistic. And uh, that's that's definitely was part of the key with, that I learned early with Mask is that you have to physicalize the the actions. And you have to find the body of the character. What is the, the character's body like? How does he stand? How does he speak? So how does he deliver his lines? It's all integral part of the acting. The acting, in quotes, process. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, I think we got... Do we have Wyatt back on? We'll see. <laughs> we rescued him from Venom. Yes, I was saying Wyatt... <laughs> I suspect Mayhem may have been behind this. I think he was, because it was my entire internet decided to crap out. That sounds like Miles Mayhem to me. We'll get to the bottom of this. Well, thank you. I apologize for the technical difficulties. Please stand by a moment. No problem. Well, um, did you ever watch any of the completed episodes from the Mask series? I probably watched all of them because it was the first. I have to admit that after 30-odd years, there are many things I do that I don't watch. Uh, I, I'm not a gamer, for instance, and I've probably done 120 games, 140 games, and directed 40, maybe, uh, and never played any of them. I've just seen excerpts of clips. But Mask was a, a very important to us. It was a career launcher. It was thrilling to be on network TV. It was bigger than anything I'd ever done. So, yeah, I absolutely uh, I watched them. I taped them at the time and the old VHS tape system and, and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, we, oh, we loved it. Uh, I think every, I'm sure everybody in the cast did. Uh, it's hard to re- recall the conversations we had at the time, but I think we were all very excited and all enjoyed watching it very much to see those, the physicalization of, of your own voice. You know, that was, uh, it was still early in my career for animation at that time. Right. And I, and I can agree with that because I know I like to listen to our work, uh, even though this is our own, uh, series or own podcast, but uh, do you actually ever, I guess, listen to your final product? Uh, I think you said you really don't listen to too much of it, like the gamers and so forth, but do you like, I guess, get to review what's going to happen? I, I, or I, don't, uh, I don't listen to it much anymore. I hear it in playback. I mean, uh, generally, when you're in studio recording something, be it anime or original animation, you, you hear the playback, so you get to hear what you've done at the moment. But I don't always listen to it in context. I won't necessarily go back unless a project has fascinated me for some reason. Uh, when I did Psycho Mantis and Metal Gear Solid, I was interested enough to find clips later on. I didn't play the game, I admit. But I have gone back on YouTube and other places and listened to clips because I was interested to see what that final product was like. So, yeah, I do, I do uh, in some cases, go back and listen to stuff that I think is fun. Um, I did a little project, and I'm not even sure what it's technically called. It was straight for the Internet, but I played Scrooge. It was the goons version of uh, the goons, what was it called, the, the night before Christmas or whatever. So I was Ebenezer Scrooge in a, a different version of it. And that fascinated me enough where I've listened to it a few times and sent it to friends. But it's probably one in a, a couple of hundred 
that I'll actually sit down and, and, and listen to carefully. Most of the time, you do the job. You're happy you did the job. They're happy. You go home. You're working <laughs> on the next edition or the next. You know, it does become a job after a while. Not, right. not that that doesn't mean to be demeaning it, but it's what you do for a living. It's how you pay the rent or the mortgage. It's what you do for food. And, and once you finish and everybody's happy and you're satisfied, you're thinking about whatever's next as opposed to what you just did. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, too, you probably have, you know, multiple projects going on at the same time or have, you know, in the past where yeah. you can't really think about the end product uh, as you're doing it because you're going from, you know, this job to this job. and Yeah, I'm not in that kind of a mode anymore, but my friend's nickname right. for me in the 90s jokingly was the busiest man in Hollywood because uh, <laughs> I was directing. I Sometimes I'd do a voice all day on a project and then head out to a studio and direct at night for four or five hours, get home at midnight, uh, write for an hour or two for some, maybe some uh, adapted anime project and then go back the next day and be working on a voice project again. So I was doing 14 to 17 hour days there for many years, sometimes seven days a week. So yeah, you just want to know, is it right? Is it good? Did it work? The, the, the producer is happy. Terrific. What's next? Let's move <laughs> my car and get to the next studio. Right. And I gotcha. can understand that I could, you know, I'm I'm military myself, and I can see the. Uh, I've worked those hours um, from time to time, and well, it's the same kind of. Although it's a creative field, wide, it's the same kind of discipline that I had to live under for for many years, doing that. I also had what was called a loop group, and I've done about a thousand films and TV shows where I was a looper, and that is supplying voices for TV shows and films. Every drama you see, and pretty much every film you watch, you'll see milling extras in the background. They're paid a very minimal amount of money to be there. They do not speak. The only ones speaking are the primary actors. And yet when you go to a film or you watch a TV show, you're hearing all kinds of people speaking. Right. What you may be hearing is five of us being hundreds of people, adopting different voices, adopting different accents, uh, pretending we're from 1840, or pretending we're from the world of Hercules or whatever, and we're supplying all the voices for that. Uh, so when you run a group, as I did, the dis what I'm trying to get to about military is the amount of discipline it's required to direct, to cast, to be a looper and run a loop group. It is sort of a military operation where I, I would prepare, prepare for hours the night before. I might be preparing till 2 or 3 in the morning so that when I got in studio with my five or six actors in our four hours to voice an entire film or TV show, we were ready to go. I knew which actor was going to do every line. I knew uh, the delivery I wanted him to have. If it was a line where nobody was speaking but only a mouth was moving, I probably had written a line the night before that would fit the lip sync for it. So, yeah, there, there can be a lot of discipline involved in aspects of this business. It's, it's almost mathematical when it gets to dubbing. In particular, there's, there's, it's mathematical in a sense, a combination of creativity and math, if you will. Gotcha. Yeah, that's impressive. I guess a follow-up question to, uh, you know, all the different characters kind of going on at the same time in TV and movies and video games. Um, have you ever, whether intentionally or accidentally, used – a voice from one character on another character. Like, have we? Would we hear Bruce Sato and maybe an yeah. anime series or something? Well, you lean on certain things. I did a voice replacement. Bruce was a Japanese, of course. Uh, I did a voice replacement for a Michael Caine film called uh, Journey to the Center of the World or something. And there was a, an Asian. There's a live action film. As I say, I did voices for. I'd, Sometimes in films that you watch, entire performances are replaced by voice actors. They don't advertise it, but it happens. We might voice match somebody, 
because we're taking up swear words or they can't uh-huh. make it to a session. And when they were recording, a helicopter went over. So people are hired as voice matches. But there was a, a film where I was essentially Bruce Sato because I replaced this poor Japanese actor who they felt his – I didn't think his accent was too heavy. They felt it was. Uh, and he was the assistant to Michael Caine in this film. So uh, certainly when, if I'm doing a Japanese actor, there's going to be a certain similarity uh, and you lean on characters you've done before, but you try to change it up a little bit. But if you're going to be a Matt Tracker type hero, you're going to sound a little like Matt Tracker. There was live action uh, stuff that I dubbed in the late 80s, early 90s, where I was a hero in those days when I was younger. And I admit some of them probably did sound a bit like Matt Tracker, but you know. <laughs> but then I've been a little mouse in a cartoon who sound like Joe Pesci. So you never know. <laughs> You steal from other people, you steal from yourself. It's all, you know, it's all theft. You know, it's all leaning. Everything came from someplace, didn't it? I mean, what the hell, eh? <laughs> I gotta be well, it's, it's true. If you think about, uh, even even on Mask, you know, you could hear uh, Jack Nicholson in, like, Sly Rax. Oh, well, and... especially in the stuff that Mark Halloran was an impressionist. So uh, Mark, when he approached a character, you know, again, we came out of a theater background and, and some microphone work, some animation. Mark was coming out of a of a background of stage work. So when he was looking for a new character, he'd say, who could he sound like? Who could he be like? So somebody would say Nicholson. And that gave him a jumping off point. So you'd hear uh, Nicholson and you'd hear Richard Dreyfus and you'd hear a lot of different film actors and TV actors and Mark's work. Cause that was his starting point. He needed to have that to start with. Um, we were coming from a different kind of a background, but with Mark's work with Sly and those other characters, you'll, you'll definitely hear, I don't do Jack, but you'll hear the tones of Jack in his performance. <laughs> in the delivery. It gives it gave him keys to how to deliver the line. You know, what words to stay on, what to draw out. So it, it just that was his hook. You know, every actor's got their own way of hooking in. That was his. <laughs> well, you mentioned that it's a voice acting is a very disciplined type of um environment just like military or any other i guess high impact or hard-working venture yeah it can be very hard-working and and the the military aspect i'd say for mathematicals mainly in the dubbing in the anime and dubbing stuff is, is where it's even more disciplined because the actor if i'm doing something uh like mask i can be freewheeling a little bit i can i can look at the line and maybe uh, uh, dusty hayes is saying we've got to get them now i've got options i go we got to get them now we got to get them now we got to get them now i i have options to how long i'll draw it out what word i'll emphasize when i'm doing anime and i'm matching an existing mouth flaps we're seeing we're doing things in 30ths of a second that's how we used to measure it before we had beeps that drew us in we had to see the screen in 30ths of a second because that's how it's per frame 30 frames per second so we had to come in via sight Getting a helicopter coming by here. I know mayhem's involved. We had to come in <laughs> by instinct and sight at the right point because they couldn't. Uh, the computers weren't sophisticated enough to move our line to hit the lip sync, and you have to take the pauses where the pauses are required by the mouth movement. So uh, if the mouth is going yap yap yap, pause yap yap, you have to say we got to get him, and now you have no choice. You have to match that mouth. So you, as an actor, have to find a way to justify your performance within the confines of the mathematics of what's on the screen already, what's already been animated. So it's a different kind of discipline than the freewheeling original animation uh, provides. So right. not every actor does both. 
It, it, some actors go crazy. They can't stand it. Cam Clark, who, who I mentioned did Ninja Turtles, dubbed for a while and hated it. Just hated it and, and got out of it. Because he couldn't stand, I think, partly the confines of, of having to make his performance fit within what had already been animated so specifically. Right. Now, what, uh, I guess, advice would you give to someone that wants to get into the voice acting business? Find another line of work. <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, most people come here to L.A., they last about six or seven months and go home again. I'm lucky. First off, uh, I'd say take classes, but from somebody reputable. I'm, I'm No, I didn't, but I was lucky and I was an exception in, in, in how I got in. But nowadays, I'd say classes are necessary. But I really would dissuade people from doing anything other than having it as a hobby. Acting is a really tough way to make a living. And you're interviewing people who have succeeded at it. So it sounds like, gosh, there's all these people out there who are making a living as actors. Most of them uh, wait tables. Most of them don't last a year here in L.A. or in New York uh, as voice actors. It's very difficult to break in and very difficult to make and sustain a living. Most of them want to be anime actors because they love anime world. And I understand that's what they were raised with. Anime pays the very least. You can't live on anime salary. People that you may interview or may know or may see it at conventions, if they were to be honest with you, if they're only doing anime, they probably have a second job. They're probably writing scripts or doing something else to sustain themselves because it's the lowest paying uh, work there is, even though it's the most well-known and, and makes people very famous, I know, among fans. It's very difficult to earn a living just doing anime, so you've got to break into either looping or directing or original animation or game world. And ga even games, again, games and anime, so popular, they don't pay residuals. Oh, wow. In other words, no matter how much of it you do and how popular it becomes, uh, doing Metal Gear Solid, which was enormously successful, as was Psycho Mantis, very popular, I make no extra money, no matter how many millions of dollars they make. I only get the one paycheck. That's it. But if I do original animation, I get residuals for my work. If I do looping for TV shows and films, I get residuals for my work. That's what has sustained me and paid my health care within the union, etc., not anime work. Uh, so I'd say maybe partly is educate yourself if you want to get in it. It's a business. And if you don't approach it as a business, you're not going to sustain and make it. You have to be talented, yes, but you also have to be uh, have some business acumen and, and be very realistic. It's highly competitive and uh, very difficult to make a, a decent living in. So I hate to dissuade people, but I don't like to encourage people to get into something that's good, that they're going to get their heart broken in either. Right, that's good advice because it's, it's interesting. I know casually I looked into it uh, some time ago, but my, my duty hours were what was very prohibitive of me even looking into it. And that's as far as I got. I was interested and that's as far as I could go. Yeah. So it's good to hear the, the advice from, from a, a pro, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's, it's highly seductive. I mean, I got into it because it was seductive, too. I was acting as a kid. It's like an amazing feeling to be on stage and have people respond to you're either trying to make them cry or make them laugh or whatever, and it's, it's an amazing feeling. And even when you're in studio, if you're just at the microphone, but you're with a good director and nice people are producing and you create a performance that, that they react to, I, I will not deny it's still, after all these years, a really nice feeling. It's very rewarding, but it's a business. Most of you, the, the, the time spent in front of the microphone is your reward. That's one one-hundredth of your time. 
the 99% of your time is spent driving around LA going to auditions or auditioning at home or arguing with this person or fighting to get a payment that these people owe you for six months or this or that. It, it's a business. So the, the rewarding aspect's there, but you pay a price for, the, for your, your blessed microphone time. You do pay a, a price to, to get in front of the mic. It's, it's a, Hollywood is a very tough town. Well, I guess I'm glad I'm on the East Coast then. And I'll just same uh, here. <laughs> it's uh, well, it's yeah. I mean, great advice, and it sounds like you were uh, lucky to get in there. Um, I guess uh, we'll shift kind of back towards uh, the mass community. We've been online with our fan site for about I guess four years now, or going on four years, and this show is uh, been is almost going on three years, if you can believe that, Wyatt. Um, I think it was February of 2012 when we. You know, did our first podcast. That's but right. Are you how aware are you, Doug, of uh, the fandom? I guess that Mask uh, still has out there. Uh, I'm always constantly surprised by it. I think what happens when you do a show like when we did Mask, we thought, well, terrific, this will be pop. You know, we were thrilled it was popular. We thought maybe it'll go into reruns for a year or two, and you know, we'll make some money. It wasn't this fun, and maybe it'll be a calling card to other work. None of us. I'm sure I could speak for all of us and say none of us imagined that 30 years later we'd be doing interviews based on a show we did in 85, 86. Never thought it would have that kind of leg. So it's a, it's a constantly a surprise to me that, that – I gather particularly in England, I had no idea at the time. Apparently it was a huge hit in England and there's all kinds of fan clubs. So and, – and I do get people contacting me for autographs and stuff still and uh, it's a, a very pleasant and – but. But unexpected surprise. Yeah, I mean, we can definitely verify that there's still fans all over the world, uh, in the UK, even uh, Europe, and um, I think there's a there's a group actually from Indonesia on Facebook, so wow. it's still out there. We actually a number of us that host uh, mask fan sites, I guess you would say, came together early this year to kind of celebrate the anniversary um, and create a quote unquote mask day. So. <laughs> We are hoping, you know, as the 30th comes up here next year, that uh, that will be able to, to keep going and that, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe Hollywood will uh, will have a chance for a comeback. <laughs> oh, for the series? Yeah, I, I, don't, I know some people are pushing for that. I don't hold out great expectations, but one, one never knows, of course. They, they, they revise a lot of things, but I don't know if Mask had the worldwide, d- despite the the passion of the fans who do exist, I don't know if it had the kind of worldwide success that, that Hollywood would look at and say, yeah, we want to bring this back. And there's also uh, legal problems, unfortunately, with masks, with ownership. I don't know if that mm-hmm. still exists, but there were problems for many years. Uh, the show got sold so many times that uh, a lot of legalities uh, occurred where uh, ownership was questionable. Uh, so I'm not even sure now who owns, if anybody, one entity owns all the rights or not. I think you're right on that. Um, after we we actually wrote a, a live action script uh, uh, as kind of a back and forth. Uh, I don't know what's it been eight years wide. <laughs> uh, it's been was, uh, seven eight years something like that that we we did this and we I know the research that we found we thought that it had been eventually sold to Hasbro, right. but we don't know if they have the entire. All of the rights, like you, you indicate, we don't know if they yeah. own the cartoon side of rights. We don't know if they just own the toy line. Yeah. We don't know where the hang-up is. I think, yeah. the, I, as far as I know, the hang-up is not the toy line, but on the other aspect. I think Hasbro does own the toy line, but 
we as actors suffered for this in that our residuals, uh, in, in fact, in this series, it was royalties because it was done under a Canadian contract. And in Canada, they're, they're termed as royalties as opposed to residuals. But it's the same theory. Ours eventually stopped. Once the show went to Europe for a few years, we stopped receiving payment because the sales were such, it got in such a, a convoluted state that our contracts weren't being passed along. So two or three buyers down the line, they were going, well, we don't owe you money. Nobody ever gave us contracts that said we owed royalties to any actors. So we couldn't oh, wow. sue them because they had, they weren't doing anything illegal. They actually hadn't even received the contracts. So something happened in the sales that was so convoluted that I don't know if anybody out and out owns everything. Uh, thank goodness when, I guess it's a uh, shout, uh, uh, distributed, uh, about a year or two ago, they brought out mask on DVD in the States and yes. bless their hearts were kind enough to really treat us properly. And, um, uh, so I do encourage people to, to buy from them. They've been very uh, fair to us where they said, yeah, you are owed money and not a huge sum, but just symbolically, it was nice of them to pay us as we were owed properly for redistribution of, of the mask cartoon here in the States. That's great. I mean, even looking at that uh, DVD release, it still wasn't, they called it complete, but yeah. there were still those 10 episodes from yeah. the, the racing series that, that didn't get included. And I guess that's, can be attributed to the, you know, however many times it's been passed around. And I think so. They just didn't even want to fool with it, you know. I think so. I, I think those ten, because they were done separately for a, it was a little different for us, too, the way they were done. It even at the time felt a little different, uh, though it seemed to still be under the auspices of, of uh, Deke. And, um, and, gosh, I forget the, I've already forgotten the other company that was involved. Um but it did feel different at the time, and apparently they are considered a separate entity, I guess. So I'm not sure who owns the rights to those. That's when uh, Brian George, I think, joined us for those last ten um, as, yes. as an additional cast member. And uh, I haven't spoken to Brian in many years now, but um, as far as I know, that, that's that been lost somewhere. Uh, somewhere in the European sales that lost, and I don't know if you'll ever see those ones again or not or what the deal is, but... Uh, if they do bring it back in either live action or animation, I doubt that we would get anything more than a, a guest spot, perhaps as you know Matt Tracker's grandfather or something. Um, <laughs> uh, as somebody else was saying, if they did re bring it back, they would either have to go 80s style with it or bring in a new cast and say that, okay, uh, it was Scott was the kid, right? I've yeah. You know, that Scott is yeah. the, new, the new hero and Matt is, you know, sort of retired and appears in an episode or two to give advice or something. I imagine they'd want younger cast members to be the actual action figures uh, in the series. Well, I know that uh, Jason and I's script is more actually based on the 80s style. Uh, so, we, we, you know, Matt Tracker is, and, and Miles Mayhem are the main characters. Scott, right. the whole cast is still there, uh, excluding, I, I would call it, the, the, the second season, if you will, uh, cast. It's just a, it's a ground up. Gotcha. Script. Uh, I just don't know if we sound. If you if you recorded me, I mean, I have a cold right now. But if you recorded me doing Matt, I've gone back recently and listened to on YouTube to some early mask stuff because I was doing interviews and it got me curious to hear it again. And I definitely sound younger uh, back then. And I don't. I can't sound the same again as I sounded then. I doubt anybody in the cast could. So the fans would have to accept a slightly more mature sounding cast. <laughs> it's thirty odd years on where. You know, some of us are in our 60s. So, uh, well, I know that uh, Jason and I had casually actually spoken about how we wanted to approach the script, whether live action, cartoon, 
Right. Uh, and initially, I think we were thinking cartoon because we wanted to bring the voice actors back mm-hmm. into the mold. Um, but somehow we steered towards uh, a live action with a basically live action as the primary focus. If that didn't sell, maybe we could do the cartoon or 3D yeah. or, or whatever animated uh, adventure. But either way, I know I I personally would like to have, if not all of the original voice cast, at least uh, a substantial amount. Of course, I'm not. I wouldn't probably not be a part of the casting department, but no. I just like to put my two cents in there somehow. Well, yeah. you'd you'd find if you sold a script to Hollywood, you'd find that the writer is pretty far down the uh, the ladder. I'm afraid, as far Unfortunately. as yeah, it's not many people get to take their scripts all the way through creatively and and take them from, from beginning to end. Usually what ends up on the screen as often as not is so far from what you originally wrote that you might not even recognize it. Uh, there are many hands that dip in <laughs> during the, during the process as I've learned over uh, just from observation over the years from both animation and, and the little bit of live action that I observe and, and tiny bit I participated in. Uh, writers are pretty far down the, the ladder, I'm afraid. Uh, so uh, they're not usually, uh, Though it, more in anime, you, you might see the writers uh, because that's a smaller family of people. And I have been on anime projects like when I was directing uh, Dynasty Warriors when it first came here, and uh, they would bring the uh, the the writers over here uh, uh, if they were uh, bilingual, and they did have some input into into the creative process. But it's kind of a rarity to see that happen down here. But it's fun to guess. I, I did a little character on Lilo and Stitch many years ago. And when they did the cartoon series, um, they had me come back. Uh, they just out of the blue called and said, we're doing something with, with the captain or inspector, Captain Gecko or whatever his name was. We want the original actor to do it. So I got to do one or two little episodes years after the fact. It is fun when the, the writers or producers remember you and say, hey, let's bring in somebody from the original cast and have them do a little, a little bit. It's always fun. When they kind of, when they re, when they remember and tip their hat to you a little bit, right? Well, what I, I guess building off of that, um, I think just this past week I noticed that they're bringing back Rainbow Bright and Care Bears. I mean, what do you make <laughs> of this kind of children of the '80s pop culture explosion on like online and at conventions? Well, uh, yeah, everybody's sort of reliving their youth and. Yeah. Perhaps if Mask wasn't as involved in, in lawsuits or whatever the problem is, it might be considered as well. But I think people, it's a nostalgia thing. It happened to my generation, too. They redid uh, TV shows like Bilko was a TV show in the 50s. They ended up redoing a film with Steve Martin, Bilko. Didn't do well, but it's a nostalgia craze that I think every generation goes through when they hit a certain age, when they start to have their own children and they see their children involved in uh, their culture of the time. And I think it, it throws the parents or that generation back into a a little nostalgia mode where they go, hey, what about the shows of our time? And boy, we were raised on this. And I loved that show and this actor. And and so they relive it. And uh, Hollywood is more than happy to, to jump on any craze, of course. And, <laughs> right. And, 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 I'm guilty as charged on that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I was raised, uh, June Foray was an actor who was on Bullwinkle. A lot of the shows that I grew up on, she's sort of revered down here. And I've gotten to work with her a couple of times. And so that's my generation's nostalgia. The fact that I can say I worked with June Foray thrills me. It, it wouldn't mean anything perhaps to younger people. But, uh, you know, I, I, when I first did Mask, we walked in the studio. Mel Blanc's photo was hanging above the, the, where the actor sat. 
Mel Blanc was every he was Bugs Bunny. You know, he was everybody. Right. And we sit there, we sat there shaking, going, Mel Blanc worked in this studio. <laughs> we have to walk in and be in front of us. We're fakers. How can we walk, work where my, Mel Blanc worked? So every generation has their their heroes. And I, I think it tends to be the ones you grew up on. When you're young and you're impressionable, these shows you immerse yourself in them. They're so believable to you. Um, and, and I respect that as a voice actor, especially when I work that's for small children. I take it very seriously because it, it's a children. You're, you're, you're part of their magical world, and they're growing up on you and your words and your performance. And I take it very seriously because it, it's part of their reality, their imaginative reality. So uh, those children's shows are very important. They're, mine are to me that I grew up on as a little tyke. And they are to your generation, I think, to every generation. It's very meaningful uh, because it's part of the, your magical world that you grew up in. When you watch those Saturday morning cartoons, you were there. You were, <laughs> you were living them. And you were yeah. thinking, oh, that's a voice actor. You were thinking, that's Twinkie. That's Boo Boo. That's, you know, whoever. Right. It's really them. And they're talking and they're having adventures and you're, you're totally immersed in it. Right. Okay. I think that's why I'm so honored, at least myself, and I'm sure Jason as well, that we get to speak to one of our favorite characters, uh, voice characters uh, from our time. Uh, I, I know Jason and I could have never fathomed ever being able to humbly, I guess, on the other side of the world or on, on the other side of a microphone talking to one of our favorite characters. Uh, it just never crossed our paths. It's like, well... We'll never get to see the cartoon. We know it's a cartoon, but we'll sure. never get to meet Matt Tracker or or Bruce Sato and whoever. It was uh, the same for me growing up as a little boy in Toronto watching these cartoons. Never occurred to me I might be behind a microphone someday or that I could ever meet them or that I would stand in the same booth where they stood. Yeah, it, it's not something you, you, you fathom as a kid. And it, it is a, a strange thing to, for me to be on the other side of it. Uh, yet, of course, I know... You know, I'm only human. Or I'm just lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be one of the people who got to be on the other side of it and, and in front of the microphone. Um, but I know it, it's like it's like talking to somebody on Mars when you're when it's something you grew up with. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. And, and thanks to the Internet, of course, we have these opportunities to meet and talk uh, or at, I don't go to conventions. But, you know, kids get to meet some of the actors they like at conventions as well. Right. Right. 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it definitely, as I say, as one of you was asking earlier, we didn't conceive of the computer world being like this or that anybody would be interested in us, uh, that conventions would exist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it was unfathomable at the time that, that fans and the actors could interact in this manner. Right, and, and like I said, it's still, uh, I consider it an honor, and I was a um, little dismayed when my Internet decided to, go out on me i'm sitting here oh, i'm gonna miss talking to doug i mean i just got a little couple chats and i'm gone so well you, you didn't miss anything we told a couple of dirty jokes he, well, he told me some background stories on you that are pretty embarrassing but i won't repeat them you know well it but, wasn't very much because that that was only maybe a, a 15 minute span so it was very we leaked a lot of it to venom so yeah. you better watch out man. jason spoke fast and he emailed me a few pictures and uh, some of the incriminating evidence and i don't know what to say wyatt but well, the only incriminating evidence he has of me is me sitting in a, in a replica General Lee. That's all he has. On. So, uh, well, there you go. It was, it was the General Lee that tipped it all off right there. 
do you uh do you get any fan mail or do, have you gotten any fan mail and if so are there any interesting or maybe quirky stories that come uh, to mind I, I have gotten fan mail I wouldn't say I've gotten a lot uh, I've probably gotten as much in the last few years as that I as I got early which 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 is amazing and and speaks mainly to the mask fascination and um and to uh psychomantis seems to have lived on as well um the strangest story that I had, when I first got to L.A., I was rather nervous. I'm a Canadian boy coming to Los Angeles. I'd been here before, but I'm not in this, this milieu of Hollywood and show business. So I was a little nervous. And I thought, I'd better be smart. This series seems to be taken off. I'm going to get a post office box, mailbox, and I won't tell anybody where I live. I'll just have mail, if any fan mail should come, come to this box. And sure enough, fan mail came in for mask. And uh, kids would write, and I'd write back and say, you know, thanks for watching, drink your milk, enjoy the show, you know, best wishes, Matt Tracker. <laughs> a young girl wrote me, and she sent a picture of her, uh, was it her, I guess her nephew, a young boy, and he was dressed in some of the mask paraphernalia of the time, and, you know, can we get an autograph? Well, I was happy to do it, sent her off an autograph for her nephew. She wrote back again and said, can we get a picture of you, of the real you, autographed? And because I'd been doing on-camera work, I did have some headshots. Now, if you could see me, I'm short, I'm very dark in complexion, I have I at that time very dark hair, I look nothing like Matt Tracker, obviously. Uh, I look more like Al Pacino than I look like anybody else I could think of offhand, <laughs> my look. So, uh, you know, I look, so, but I said, okay, don't be disappointed that I don't look like the characters, but here's an autograph, sent the picture off. She wrote back a third time, a picture of her in a rather short skirt saying, you're so handsome in that cartoon, and your voice is so sexy. So she completely ignored this picture of the real me and had fixated on Matt Tracker as a sex symbol and was writing this rather, it wasn't a lascivious letter, but it was a rather flirtatious letter to Matt from this girl saying, I thought you might want to know more about me, and you're so handsome in that cartoon, and I sing in the choir, and da 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 and all this flirtatious stuff, and a whoa, boy, I'm so happy I have a P.O. box. <laughs> so you sent back the letter the fourth time and said, well, I'm into this girl named Gloria Baker. And... <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm afraid she'd got no fourth letter. Uh, I, I have years the best thing to do is abandon ship. Right. <laughs> when somebody starts to get too strange, abandon ship and just do not engage. Because there are instances down here. Uh, I was talking to a buddy. I was just out for lunch the other day with, with – uh, Yesterday with uh, Mike McConaughey and Dave Mallow, two other voice actors down here. And uh, Michael uh, was saying he has a P.O. box, and he was saying people have actually showed up to it on occasion. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's desperate, I think. (laughs) Very, well, scary. It's scary. It's scary when people show up to your P.O. box because they want to meet you. And what they really want to meet is the person. They want to meet the character. They're not even fathoming that there's a human being behind all this who has rent to pay and gets sick and gets well and has romances, you know, just has a life like everybody else. Some people, unfortunately, fixate to the point where all they really are hearing or seeing is the characters you're doing. So those are the ones, and most fans are wonderful and very respectful and very polite and grounded, and they get it that you're an actor who's doing these characters. But all it takes is one or two people to scare you, the ones who fixate on the character themselves and don't seem to realize there's a human being behind that. You know, I'm not actually psychomantis. I'm not actually ripping things apart with my bare hands. And, oh, darn. You know, I'm sorry, but Miles Mayhem is actually, Brendan is a very nice man, and he's not out to take over the world. So, you know, uh, Well, uh, I guess speaking of uh, 
Speaking of Brendan, uh, how much do you keep in touch with uh, your other mass cohorts? Uh, well, uh, uh, Sharon and Brendan are very dear friends. I don't see them as often as I'd like. That's because of work commitments, uh, primarily theirs. They're very, very busy people. Uh, Brendan is going for his law degree, uh, of all things. So they're extremely busy. But uh, I count them as, as very close friends. They were very kind to me. I was new to L.A. They were already living here. And uh, they were very welcoming and very warm to me as somebody new here who didn't socially know anyone. I would be invited to their home quite often. So they've remained very good friends. Uh, Mark Halloran and I roomed together for a while uh, during the mask days. I just was on the phone with him about a week ago. We don't see each other as often, but we still do speak on the phone and will occasionally get together. Uh, Graham, as far as I know, lives in New York now, and I haven't been in touch with him in quite a few years. We became Facebook friends, but but we haven't had any uh, any contact, really. Um, Let's see. Uh, uh, Brian George, I had um, called to hire because after Mask, I got into casting and directing. And Brian's very talented, and I would uh, uh, bring him aboard uh, uh, occasionally. But again, I haven't seen Brian in probably 15 years. Uh, the young fella whose first name I've forgotten, um, who played the, the, the young youngster, we didn't get to see him as often. He did work with us initially. Uh, in the cast recordings, we would work with him, but gradually they started to record him separately. He had school commitments. You know, he was a young kid, right. and uh, we just didn't get to see him as much. Uh, he was a nice kid, but we just never really stayed in touch, you know, different generation and what all. But we actually went to his home um, to see the first Mask cartoon. Uh, when it was first aired, he invited the cast over, and we got the opportunity to uh, to see the uh, the first Mask cartoons, which was rather exciting. Uh, but I don't know that I've seen him. I may not have seen him since then. It's probably been since 1986 or seven since I've, I've seen him. Wow. And I haven't seen Graham probably since 88 or 89. Graham, for a while, I was doing a, a theater thing down here, comedy, doing uh, improv and sketch work. And Graham was kind enough to come out and do lights for us for a while back in the late 80s, which was very kind of him. It sort of teched our show for us. But as far as I know, he's in New York, and I'm really not sure what he's up to now. So that's kind of the, the history of it. That sounds good. Yeah, um, I, I believe that's Brennan Thick, who is. Uh, yeah. He's the son of Alan Thick, I believe. That's correct. That's what we uh, were to see. We went to Alan Thick's home to see the uh, the first episodes aired. Uh, he invited us over there and. Uh, fun. His dad. Yeah. Uh, I think it about wraps up our questions. We did have a few. We have a uh, a following. Uh, Small following online, and uh, we decided to go ahead and email them out and right. tell them we were going to be able to interview you, and uh, they sent in a few questions. You want to take it from there, Wyatt? Sure. Uh, Justin from Springfield, Missouri, and Jonah from North Carolina both essentially asked the same question. If Mask becomes a live-action movie, which actor do you think would be a good fit for Matt Tracker? Oh, boy. It's not something I've thought out. So, and and I have to be honest with you, I'm I've gotten very bad over the years about going to films. I used to go probably three times a month. I I rarely go out to see films anymore. So I'm not as hip as to who an actor who would be a good actor in their 30s to to play him. I mean, I'd love Daniel Day Lewis to play anything in all characters because I think he's a genius, and Kate Blanchett to play all the female characters because she's a genius. <laughs> uh, and in fact, Kate Blanchett might be good in, in Sharon's roles. Uh, she's getting a little older for that. Um, uh, you know, I, 
I may have to pass on that one. I, I can't think of a, a guy in his 30s who is appropriate. I would bow to your uh, knowledge uh, on more than me. I, I don't have anybody I can glibly throw out there as, as a potential. We've actually a couple times put out to our followers uh, some actor polls, you know, to see who they would at least nominate or suggest or right. somebody we could put in with our script if it ever got picked up to, oh, this guy would be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the one that's actually live, I think now uses uh, the, the front runner is uh, Aaron Eckhart who played, um, he was in the, uh, the most recent Batman movies where he played um, Harvey Dent, oh, uh, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. um, what, I can't remember what else he has been in, but um there's several others that I guess mainly based on appearance, right. uh, you know, they have picked. They, um, they need a demeanor. Be, I, Russell Crowe comes to mind because Russell. Yes. They need uh, to be mad on camera, I think, and I, and maybe Eckhart can do that. I only remember from from his role in Batman. Uh, for him, there has to be a certain um, gravitas. There has to be a certain gravity that that he can uh, uh, emote, where he's uh, very solid. He has to be. That's why I say Russell Crowe. I envisioned Matt, at least when I was doing it, as somebody you don't knock off your, his feet, neither physically or emotionally or with uh, a crisis. You don't throw Matt off. You know, Dusty might get overexcited. Bruce might go within himself or whatever. But <laughs> Matt has got to be that the stalwart eyes of steel guy. Right. So if, right. If Mr. Eckhart can pull that off, then great. Yeah, I'd say that, <laughs> that would work. I, I only know him from his Harvey Dent. Um, getting on to our next question, which you've kind of already answered, uh, Christopher from Australia asked, uh, how did you come up with the voice of Matt Tracker? And you've kind of mentioned how he stands. Um, yeah. I guess, did, how much were you given about him as you went into the auditions? Uh, remember? I do recall that we had drawings, and I could see right off the bat, uh, I knew Matt was a lot bigger than me, so I knew I had to go down into you know, my lower register to deal with Matt. Uh, and I could see very much the differences between him and Hondo and Dusty and Bruce were, were very, um, it was very obvious. They were physically different. Uh, with Matt, I, I kind of went into my lower register. They did give me some information that was very valuable. It's always great if they give you a paragraph, at least, that tells you not only physically what the character is about, but what's his relationship to the other characters and what's his place in the overall scheme of things. And when I saw Matt, I thought, okay, he's the thread. Obviously, he, he's the guy in charge of Mask. He's the thread that holds it together. And he's also the emotional thread that holds it together. So he's got to be the most reliable guy in the world, the most moral guy in the world, the most decent, uh, uh, the, the guy who's always going to react from the very best place of his heart, but with strength. So uh, I tried to, as I said earlier, yes, adopt a physical stance of a guy who's the rock. You know, we all have a friend maybe growing up who's the rock, the guy we count on. When, when the chips are down in, 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 in naval or army terms, when the action starts, there's guys who talk and then there's guys who, who pick up their gun and know who to fire at, when to fire, when not to fire, when to take over, when to hold back. There's got to be a guy. You know, maybe he's the sergeant, maybe he's the lieutenant. In, in, in the mask army, it was Matt. So I just felt I had to embody all that within him, that he was the guy that in action and in peace was always the man, always the one that you could rely on. So that's what I tried to embody in the audition 
with him, whereas Bruce was the philosopher king who stepped back. He was fine in action, but he was the observer. He was the one who watched what happened. Dusty was the loose screw. You had to keep a, a handle on Dusty. He'd go off crazy on you. I'd <laughs> jump right into the fray when it was too early. <laughs> so Matt had to be the guy who knew. Dusty, not yet. He had to be the, the guy at the wheel constantly. And Hondo was a little bit of that, too. Uh, Hondo had a little bit of that laid back where he could he could observe the, the field of action a little bit more than Dusty, maybe. Whereas Bruce was sort of uh, always solving the problems. You know, what are we going to do here and there? And he'd come up with his little motto. Uh, you know, a spoon will often bend from for- from the mind as well as from force, or, you know, whatever. That would, <laughs> that would tip Matt as to, of course, what was I thinking? You know, if, we can, if we can get into the computer, we can solve the problem rather than blowing up the computer. We can re uh calibrated or whatever, so Bruce was the, the problem solver, but Matt had to be the man of action, the thinker and the man of action. We, we joke, you know, now that we're, we've almost reviewed the first, uh, you know, first half of the series uh, on these on the show, and uh, we always joke how many times Bruce stumps Dusty or somebody <laughs> right. else, and Matt Matt serves as the interpreter, basically. Yeah, he, got, he gets Bruce. Bruce is sort of a separate entity. In, in his own way, and Matt is his connection. I think if Matt didn't exist, Bruce might not be in the team because everyone <laughs> just go, "I don't get it." <laughs> nice guy, but I don't get it. Yeah, he did. They did sort of. It was corny in a way because he spoke in platitudes, but it was cool too. I, I liked Bruce. Yeah, in uh, fact, uh, Jason actually started up a little Twitter account called Bruce Sato Says, and uh, uh, between him I, and I, I we I come tried. up with quirky <laughs> sayings just because. <laughs> Just some, you know, some little fun ones, and some I've taken like music lyrics and yeah. <laughs> changed it to put lift in there or something. Well, I'll tell you, as an actor on the show, there was times when I'd read a Bruce line. I mean, I'm reading the script beforehand, going, uh, "No idea what he means." <laughs> so I'd have to read the whole script and go backwards to try to figure out what was it Bruce was setting up Matt to solve by saying, "Ah, okay," because I, okay. I didn't want to just mouth the words without not knowing the true meaning of it. But at times Bruce would stump me as well, and, and it did take a little puzzling out. Because the draft- I guess I can, I was gonna say, I guess I can uh, not be so harsh then on the ratings when I'm considering that I don't understand what Bruce is saying either. <laughs> Sometimes the director didn't know. You know, we, if the writer wasn't there, so we were shooting in the dark. So I'd have to sort of solve it, and uh, if I had to ask the director, give me your interpretation of what Bruce meant by this. But generally, we'd get the scripts ahead of time, which I love having when they when they do that. They don't always. Particularly in anime, you rarely see the script beforehand. You walk in, you see the line a second before you're going to read it. You just have to quickly interpret. The director will give you some idea of, of what the context is, and you just interpret the line. But it is nice in, in Mask and, and most original animation when you get the script ahead of time. So you can figure out what the heck Bruce was talking about. With Dusty, it was always pretty easy to know. It was usually just a call to action. Just- one more... Uh- Listener question, why? Yeah, uh, one of our faithful listeners, Anna from uh, Norway, asks, what do you think are Mac Tracker's greatest flaws or weaknesses, if any? <laughs> Matt's, uh, boy, can you be too nice a guy um, in Matt's case? <laughs> well, I mean, I think sometimes I'm having to really reach back here. Uh, when the bad guys knew, like Mayhem, who had no morality whatsoever and, and would destroy anyone, you know, he'd run over his own grandmother if it was going to further his goals. I think sometimes he tried to take advantage of Matt, knowing Matt had a strong moral base. Yes. Um, so that could be seen as a weakness. 
because it was something that could be played upon. I personally don't see it as a weakness because I, I like to think I like Matt's moral base. I like morality. In I don't mind doing a bad guy character. It's fun, but I I like the entertainment values. I like the values where there is a moral base. Right. But I'd say that that might be his love of Scott. Is he had a little bit of a blind eye where the kid was concerned sometimes when Scott would get into maybe too much mischief, and maybe sometimes his uh, morality could be played upon um, because he always wanted to, to, to have the highest uh, echelon of of decency. And the bad guys could play upon that. Um, other than that, I, I don't know. Uh, other people would have to tell me. Maybe I was too close to him. I, I <laughs> saw him as a very admirable character, so I, I didn't see a lot of weaknesses in him. Other than I, I think his humanity. I, I think you're definitely on to something because I know you know we've had the luxury of going through back uh, all these. Uh, episodes and watching, but there's several times where we're so frustrated that they don't go after and pursue uh, Venom and Mayhem because there's all, they have to you know take these pandas back to yeah. where they belong or yeah. they have to return this gold that they stole or something you know so they have to let Venom go you know so I guess that might be a, might be a weakness I guess of Matt like you said the yeah. the moral person and not wanting to just take you know mayhem out once and for all and, and part of it of course is the writers looking for an out because they don't want us to capture mayhem in the second episode <laughs> of course that is true so what are they going to use for an out? well they can use the fact that matt has those pandas and well yeah matt would want to return them type 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 we'll have to return the screen you know as an actor i've just got to justify what the writers have created by morally you know in my performance saying we've got to get them back they need water desperately dusty we can't leave them here in the desert. Mask will have to wait for another day. You know, <laughs> you've got to find your justification for what the writers did. But uh, I, I think that they were usually playing off his his moral base that he had to do what was right, and he always, I think, had a certain sympathy for Mayhem because if you go into the backstory, and I'm no expert in it, but if you go into the backstory, there was a time when they worked together. There was a time when they knew each other. And I think my I think Matt always believed that in everybody there's a decent person if you could just find him. Uh, I think he found it quizzical and puzzling that mayhem could be so evil and and not have something redeeming. He kept hoping I think that someday mayhem would turn it around and say, "What have I been doing? You know, I'm totally wrong. I apologize to all of you." <laughs> Coming back, you know, you actually you actually strike on something because in in. Jason and I's movie that we've written, there is a backstory. Um, you guys are are basically all in the same uh, combat unit, right? And that's where you start out from, and it becomes where uh, try not to give away too much of the plot, but it, basically, the uh, Miles's brother is left behind, and that's where the the whole disarray, the evil uh, tendency out of Miles actually surfaces. When you when I, Matt I, is trying to correct it, I sorry to interrupt. I just it reminds me. I did Boyce's brother for a few episodes. Yes, we yes. saw <laughs> Maximus. Maximus, that was the name, right? Yes. Boy, I was hard put because Brendan must have torn his voice up every episode doing that character. Uh, <laughs> very hard to match it. Well, that's one thing too. Now that I'm, I got <laughs> questions kind of coming off the cuff here. But was there ever? times that you remember you had to basically fill in for one of the other voices? No, we never I don't recall any instances where we covered for each other, no. I think uh, 
if anybody was ill or couldn't make a session, they, they would just reschedule. Uh, we didn't. I don't recall any instances of us voice matching each other. It's happened in other times in, in the thirty mm-hmm. plus years since, where we've been. I've been asked as an actor to voice match people, but I don't recall it happening during Mask. There's. I think it's mainly in the earlier episodes where, I mean, it could have been just. And I. I can't remember if it was Mark that did T Bob the robot. Uh, no, that um, was Graham. That was Graham. Okay. Um. It. It could have been just him trying to get that correct voice. Yes. Uh, and we were like, it sounds a little bit different. Maybe somebody else filled in or something for this episode or whatever. But. Graham had a bit of a struggle, uh, and, and the T-Bob voice did change slightly. I don't know if he had a struggle or if they just decided they wanted it differently, but there was a period after we had done some shows uh, that I do recall um, that he went off with Stu Rosen, who was uh, became the second director and directed most of the shows, uh, and they were working on T-Bob alone, not in the studio, but you know in their homes. Uh, in refining the voice, and I think the T-Bob voice did change slightly. But as far as I know, it was always Graham, just that he altered it a bit mm-hmm. as, as time went on. So those early... It happens, if if you listen to all of us, probably between episode 1 and 65, there may have been alterations. It's very difficult to come in with a character full-blossomed. You, right. As you record and as the time goes on, you kind of discover things about them, or you come up with little quirky things. You think, it'd be fun if I had Matt make always hesitate when he makes a decision a little bit more. I, I've been too full on. I'm going to start hesitating because he's weighing the moral complications. You know, there's, there's little things you, you want to play with as you go along without losing the character, but you kind of grow, right. grow into them. Right. And I think as a viewer, as even of us now who are going back and reviewing them, it, we appreciate kind of taking chances and seeing them in, in different light than what they – you know, quote unquote, normally are. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting that the development is there as the, as the series goes on. And you're hoping the writers will, will also go with development in any series you do. I mean, I've done other ones after mask, of course, and you're always hoping that they'll, every actor wants to stretch and play and have his scenes where he makes them cry and makes them laugh and, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, So if the writers take chances and push the envelope a bit, then the actor of course loves the opportunity to, to stretch within a character and do more. Well, one thing, and why you can interrupt me if I'm spitballing too much here, but uh, one thing that we kind of wanted with our when we started the script was more of an origin story because Mask, you know, from episode one it was like boom, Mask and Venom exist and they're fighting and we don't know, you know, kind of what happened in the past. So, do you think that? had any effect on you know how the the character started out or do you do you like to have that origin story when you go into a project like that uh, I like a certain amount of backstory but uh, I've learned over the years that uh, at least my take on it and the actors that I know's take on it is we don't need as much as people think we do um, for, in, in other words they did give us some backstory in mass but I've gone into shows where they've given me four or five pages of how this began and where this started and da 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 and I got to say, you know what? Cut to the chase. I just need to. I need to know about the the character. I don't need to know uh, unless unless they want an accent of some kind. I don't need to know where he's born. It's not important to me. I right. don't really. I don't really care where he comes from unless you're asking me to do the accent. <laughs> I care where he comes from because I want to do something very accurate for that. Of course, I want to make it very simultaneously correct, but not otherwise. <laughs> I just need to know: is this an angry man? Is he bitter? Uh, did his family abandon him? I don't need to know if they abandoned him in a mine shaft or in a in a 
a van that was parked by the side of the road, that stuff I don't care about. But if he was abandoned by his family, if uh, he's got anger issues at his mother who never loved him as much as the those are all cool. Those are all great things to know for a character building. Terrific stuff. But I could just have those as, like, uh, Dash, bitter at his mother, Dash, abandoned as a child, Dash. I don't need all the colorations. Uh, I can fill those in. Right. So a certain amount of backstory is helpful, but after a while, I, you know, I read, I speed read through it. Uh, the main that thing probably comes like, with the experience that you've, you've learned too. I mean, maybe starting yeah, out, you needed a little more backstory. Now it's like, uh, what? Do, what do you want me to do? Okay, got it. Yeah, I guess so. You do want it short formed as as you get along in it because you do feel, yeah, maybe it's experience. You feel confident enough. Uh, were you just saying to the director? Do you want him angrier? Do you want him more bitter? Or do you want him uh, just ferocious? Uh, do, doing the Metal Gear Solid guy, Psychomantis, uh, I just needed some key words. Uh, bitter is different than angry. Uh, a bitter anger is a different anger than, than a guy who's just uh, um, uh, a sadomasochistic. He's different than somebody who's embittered. So the director's there, and when I've directed, the director's there to give you short-form instructions mm-hmm. that he's getting from the producers and the writers and he might only give you two or three words to jump off from. You go, got it. I think. Let me give you something to see if you like it. You give him some performance, and they might go, great, we like it. Uh, technically, we want him deeper and raspier. Okay. Uh, and as far as character uh, description goes, uh, we want him more tucked in. We want his bitterness not to be as over the top. Tuck him in a little bit. So he's not maybe being ferocious, out there ferocious, but it's tucked in anger. So you're tucking in the character a little bit more. They might say billboard him more, short forms. Billboard, to billboard a line means to put it in quotations more. So you might say, rather than, I hate that guy's guts, you might say, I hate that guy's guts. I'm billboarding it. I'm, boom, putting it in quotations and slamming it up there with neon lights on it. Hmm. So there's all kinds of short form that directors will use with the actors where it doesn't require as much backstory as much as it requires an actor who's uh, a director who speaks your language and their job is to short form all that backstory for you and to give you a, here's a brief backstory on the story. Here's a brief backstory on your character. Here's your first line. Boom. Rock and roll. Right. Money is time. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, Wyatt, do you got anything else before we, uh, we finally let Doug go? <laughs> no, I was trying to be conscious of his time. I, I, That's okay. Uh, okay. We, uh, well, we greatly appreciate uh, you coming in here and, and virtually anyway to to chat with us. Like I said, it's an, an honor for me. Uh, granted, I'm yeah. 38 and, and some, but it's still an honor to be able to speak to you as as one of our our childhood memories or voices. And uh, I just I just wanted to emphasize again that I'm humbly grateful that you were able to to come on and chat with us. Well, I second that. It's very kind of you. Again, I take, I t- do take it seriously that the same as in my childhood, when I met June Foray and got to work with her, she was, uh, as I say throughout, she was all the women in the Bullwinkle series and whatever. I was like, oh my goodness. But she was very gracious and very kind. I think, uh, I appreciate that I was part of people's childhoods and, and it's an honor for me to have had that opportunity to, to be a part of, of, young people's childhoods when they were growing up. So I, I, I honor that. And I, sure, I'm just have to move my cat. Now, That's okay. I'm talking to anybody else, they think I'm talking to them. 
So she, she's right up in front of the screen with her hair in my mouth as I'm talking <laughs> to here. Can I just promote something? I'm not uh, – I'm just promoting it only in that – out of interest. Um, sure. I just did a, uh, recently did a film that had a wide release in Europe and a very short release here and cinematically. But I think it's available on uh, pay-for-view and stuff now. So if you want to hear Matt Tracker – Matt Tracker's grandfather, Matt Tracker, 30 years later, uh, there's a film out called House of Magic, uh, which is a children's film uh, animated. It was originally done in 3D, uh, but uh, obviously on TV and cinema the, or the limited release, it's, it's not in 3D and you don't need glasses for it. But I played a character called Lawrence, who's a magician who uh, I'm very much into. And I work, work a lot in animal welfare now. It's my sort of after work thing is I, I, I work in animal rescue. Uh, uh, and do a lot of volunteer work in that regard. And in this particular film, Lawrence, very, he's sort of the kind-hearted Matt Tracker grandfather, if you will, uh, is a magician who entertains children at hospitals and whatever. So it's an adventure film. It's also a children's film. It's very warm-hearted. I'm, I'm very much in love with it. Uh, it's called House of Magic. So if you, uh, you want to hear Matt Tracker is a, a retired 65, 70-year-old, you can listen to House of Magic and... Uh, and uh, you've got Lawrence the Magician is, is the character I do in that. And uh, it's available, I think, on, uh, on TV now for uh, you know, all those pay-per-view channels and all that stuff. Uh, it's a, fun, it's a fun, fun film, I think. We'll have Excellent. to check it out. We, yeah, we will definitely look that up. We'll try to put it in the show notes. And uh, once we uh, you know, put this up on the blog, uh, the show, we'll, uh, we'll try to find a link or something to it and encourage people to go out and, and take a look and – and even uh, you know some of the other work between now and <laughs> back in 1985. Oh yeah, well there's 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 literally probably 2,000 or something jobs, but most of it, a thousand of it was TV jobs uh, doing film and TV work that would be invisible to the public. I guess one of the things I did, my group did all the Hercules and Xena shows from the 90s. Wow. Uh, okay. 220 shows were my group, which was called Synchronicity Looping. We came in and did all the voices of everybody other than the principals and guest stars. So all the people that Xena and Herc beat up, all the villages they traveled through, all the monsters they met, etc., that was us. <laughs> wow. That's so, awesome. So I did a lot of that kind of work. I did ER, Chicago Hope, all these shows in the 90s. So a lot of the work's invisible, and other stuff you're not credited for, like a lot of the games we don't get credits for. Uh, shows like Tenchi, I directed back, cast and directed back in the 90s. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. I kept busy. So it's it's I've been blessed I've been lucky. That's good. That's great. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll go ahead and and wrap it up. And we again, like Wyatt said before, we really appreciate your time, and uh, I know the listeners will also appreciate it. And getting to uh, getting to hear a little insight into how basically Mask was developed and the characters and and everything. So yeah. again, we appreciate your time, Doug. No problem. It was a very meaningful. I know it was meaningful to you guys. It was meaningful to me too because it. It got me. It launched my career. Mask really. It's what got me started in L.A. So I do have sentimental attachment to that series, definitely. Despite the work since, Mask is is rather important to me as well. Well, that wraps up our interview with Doug. That was a awesome time. Yes, very hilarious at mo- at most of the time. <laughs> it, it cracks me up with the voices. Um, you know, you know, still thirty years later, and. Almost on a whim, he can produce Dusty and Bruce, and he still remembers how to kind of formulate their speech, and it's amazing. Right, and it's impressive 
how versatile he is. He, he and he's humble. He's he, he admits that he's really can't pull off a a Matt Tracker uh, voice anymore, but uh, he's still Matt Tracker to us, among other voices. Right. So uh, it was an awesome interview. I I can't wait to uh, to interview another uh, voice actor, hopefully in the near future. But uh, it's great. Yeah, that would be great if uh, we will try to reach out to some of the other actors if they have time to even to give us a half hour interview or whatever they uh, they can fit in our schedule um, would love to have more of those down the road but uh, it was really nice to get the lead character I guess you would say first and uh, it was just it was such a fun interview so so uh, before we go we wanted to mention uh, we've been doing a lot of work actually Jason's been doing a lot of work uh, promoting MassCast and other Mass uh, ventures uh, for ourselves, one of which is the latest video montage with uh, Sly Rax uh, basically wrecking it, <laughs> wrecking his bike. Uh, so please check that video out if you haven't already. Uh, we've also been going through the polls. We are finished up with the, the narrowing it down to, to the choices. So now it's up to you, the listener or mask agent, if you will, to vote on who you'd like as to play our our characters, whether it's uh, Matt Tracker, uh, Dusty Hayes, and so forth. So we're looking forward to that. Yes, it's really easy to find those. Just go to agentsofmass.com. Uh, up in the top right, you'll see actor polls, and the final ballot is up now. Basically, there's 12 different polls. Uh, you'll see the first one up there, which is Matt Tracker. As soon as you vote for him, it goes right to the next poll, so... Feel free to go through and vote for all 12. And then once we tally up the votes in a couple weeks, we will put those results up on our movie pitch uh, page for uh, for everyone to see um, as our quote-unquote choices to play the characters in the movie. And as Wyatt said, if you'll go on to YouTube and look for Agents of Mask, we have our channel up there. And uh, currently have three videos, uh, original videos that are up there. The the Slyrax uh, music video tribute. Um, we've also got one for Vanessa uh, with her whip mask. And then when I chronicled my uh, toy collection, you can uh, check that out as well. And uh, we also go through and like you know different um, episodes and everything and comment. So you feel free to subscribe to us on YouTube. And, of course, we're always on Facebook and Twitter. So join us uh, basically anywhere <laughs> anywhere you want to on the web. Yeah, we're just about everywhere, it seems. But uh, I want to take another moment, aside from the humble appreciation with Doug Stone doing the interview, I want to also say thank you to Jason. He seems to be the, uh, the lone rider, so to speak, when promoting the agents of mask and all the, its entities uh it, it's unfortunately a scheduling problem with me to be able to do much more but i do want to at least uh, publicly appreciate jason and all he does for the uh agents of mask corporate company whatever you want to call it <laughs> uh, uh but yeah i just wanted to say thank you before we sign out of here well i appreciate that and like i said m many a time to other people too it's a true labor of love and uh, in helping basically the mass community as a whole so right. uh, it's fun it helps get me some experience it, uh, you know the video uh, editing and uh, 
you know, producing the podcast and, and all that good stuff. Uh, it's nice to have that under the belt, but it's also nice to do it for something that you uh, are really passionate for. So Right, and I'm hoping that my schedule, uh, both personal and military schedule, will, will lighten up. Come on, man. Me too. Because I get tired of uh, work and, uh, well, work basically again. And then uh, I think there's a nap in there somewhere in between. <laughs> so, Don't always come when you got uh, little ones running around. But and that's not the half of the story. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we do appreciate everybody listening and following us and uh, checking out our content online and we uh, look forward to bringing you more on this show and on uh, on our website and everywhere else. Uh, but for now, we hope you appreciated the interview as much as we did, and uh, we will talk to you soon. That's right. And again, on behalf of Jason, I'm Wyatt, and thank you again for joining us on MazCast. Boris Bushkin will be listening to translated version of uh, of this interview from Meskhest with my uh, old adversary, uh, Matt Frecker. I did not like him very much. I don't like him very much now. But I will pour a vodka, have some caviar, and listen.